This is a conversation with journalist April Ju, based out of Nairobi, Kenya, on China, Kenya, and Africa. We discuss the relationship between these nations, how the huge influx of investment from China has drastically altered the lives of everyday Kenyans, if this investment is for the benefit of the many, or rather the few of the ruling class, both in China and Kenya, as well as the solidarities and spaces that are flourishing in new and unique ways in both countries from the new waves of immigration that go both ways, in which solidarities and spaces are heavily policed, ranging from making sure that solidarity is not built with Xinjiang's Uyghur and Muslim populations, to the fallout that recently happened in the wake of COVID-19 from blatant racism on the part of China as a nation state towards Africans residing in Guangzhou. It's a fascinating conversation about race, immigration, capital, and what the future of the world may look like. For more conversations, like the one we'll have with April, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. You can also go to our main website, asiaarttours.com, where we host print interviews and programs with artists, academics, and thinkers from around the world. Here's our conversation now with April Ju on China, Kenya, and Africa. I hope you enjoy. My name is April Zhu. I am a Chinese-American freelance journalist uh, based here in Nairobi, Kenya, where I've been reporting for the past three years or so on mostly issues of gender, of urban equality, uh, sorry, inequality, um, and more recently in the past year or so on all things China, Kenya, especially as seen from the margin. So within uh, Hong Kong, Laosan has done a very good job documenting the colonial technologies and logics of from when Britain uh, controlled and uh, as imperialists uh, directed the policing of that territory. And I'm wondering for Kenya, um, is, is this logic of all cops are bad? Would that apply to a Kenya as well? Is there a very different policing where if we went from uh, the rich areas of Nairobi to much uh, poorer or uh, areas where people have been labeled the other, the different people who've been racialized or otherized and pushed aside. How do we see um, some of these logics that Laosan has wrestled with in a Hong Kong, the, U the U.S. is now grappling with in its protests? How would we see that in a Kenyan context? Yeah, that's a really good question. And to start, I think we can look at Nairobi, which is um, a colonial city that has, I mean, we're still wrestling with the legacies of Nairobi's apartheid design. It's a completely, uh, incredibly segregated city. Um, and the, the racial segregation that marked the, its birth as a colonial city has just very smoothly transitioned into, um, class lines. Yeah. Race lines to class lines. And, um, and of course the many informal settlements, um, 
that exist right now are just a testament to that. And this has shaped Nairobi in a way that I think makes what you're pointing out, the, the protection of property and the, the protection of, you know, yeah, of capital more visual, I think, than perhaps in other cities where in these, um, where you have very clearly different ways of, um, different ways of, of policing. I mean, you see basically everything is behind a gate. Um, you have in the, in the more affluent areas, everything is sort of, and these are just, this is, it's, uh, anti, anti-poor design, um, all of these security measures, the things that sort of make Nairobi look what it looks like right now and not like some other city is uh, designed, has been designed um, both like in a, in a large way in terms of like um, urban planning and the, you know, neighborhoods and things like that, but also in an individual way, like house to house, um, why every house has an electric fence, every compound has an electric fence, things like that. Um, it has been designed to keep out uh, keep out the poor and keep away the poor and with that of course the crime associated with it um, and so the block I think for in Kenya in terms of um, all cops are bad is I think there is there exists still now in the form of um, class and instead of race, this idea that property needs to be protected. I, I think, and this is the conversation that a lot of um, progressives in Kenya, I think, have been having in, in light of uh, George Floyd, is that if people, a lot of Kenyans have been pointing out that while many Kenyans are quick to decry the anti-Black violence in the U.S., they will then turn around and justify you know, the extrajudicial killing of young men in Mathare and in, in other informal settlements in Nairobi because they're quote-unquote thugs or they're quote-unquote thieves, you know. Like, it's just a, a, a pretty easy translation between uh, what seems so clearly to be wrong racial violence in the U.S., but when you, you know, then make it into class violence or class-based violence in Kenya, some people, or even ethnicized space in, in political situations, violence against um, people of a certain ethnic group in Kenya, then people are not, people don't see that as easily. Um, and so I think the, again, going back to what you're saying about um, Lausanne and, and other groups that are doing the work of bringing out the, uh, the decolonial perspective, sort of, um, tracing what all of these different contexts share in common. Of course, being cognizant that they're completely different and not, you know, not always the same, but doing the work of highlighting where these forms of oppressions are shared across different countries and where, um, and, and what needs to be done, how we can, um, how we can learn from one another's context, what, um, Kenyans can learn from the Hong Kong context and what, um, uh, what, uh, black Americans and their allies in the U S can learn from others. You know, all of these things are, uh, in, I, I think this is, I hope what comes out of this moment is that it, again, lifts everything up to the surface right now so that we can more easily see where these things overlap um, and where uh, we can learn from one another.
a lot of how journalists I've seen who predominantly have been white, um, who have covered China's rise in Africa uh, in terms of investment of infrastructure, transfer of capital, workers immigrating and so on, will frame it in sort of uh, neo-colonial terms or neo-imperialist terms. And um, your work does a very good job um, adding complexity and nuance to what I think can be the ickiness I feel of a of a of a white journalist talking about these things while while not explicitly looking at the roots of a lot of white wealth, while at the same time, um, it is it makes me very nervous to see these huge pools of capital and the power that's associated with them. And and this is a long way of saying we can learn from one another, but if we're all working for Jeff Bezos, it doesn't fucking matter. Um, in, in, in this uh, one dude's opinion. So just for Kenya, I, I wanted to sort of frame for scope and scale. And you, you don't have to be, uh, you know, a statistician. If you want to just talk in terms of these more visual terms, feel free. What's the scope and scale of what China has put into Kenya? And what's the scope and scale of what's going back to China? Yeah. So I like how you frame this, how you began this question, because I think that when we pick apart this question that is so often tossed around of like, is this colonialism? Is this neocolonialism or not? Is China neocolonial? Well, I think you need to take one step back and like, what does, why does colonial, what is colonialism? It's all about power and, and capital, like you said. And so if we want to answer that question well, um, we need to, I think, break it down to the uh, lowest common denominator and talk about then power and the way in which that manifests. And that then I think frees us to talk about different forms of power, not just um, economic in terms of investment, FDI loans, infrastructure projects, whatever, but also um, political power and also the power relations between individuals, which is I think what my reporting more focuses on. Um, so in terms of Kenya, um, I think this is one of the places where the neocolonial uh, narrative and I guess the neocoloniality of this all is more is more visual because um, first of all, there's the standard gauge railway. Um, this is Kenya's largest infrastructure project since the Uganda railway that uh, from, you know, from colonial times that basically made Kenya into a nation. The British came and they were building a railway into Uganda. Um, and in the meantime, like that was, you know, that's the kind of the, um, the, the sort of, I don't know what you call it, like the, the meridian that splits the country and sort of everything is centered around that, um, that line from Mombasa all the way to, um, um, I don't even know where the old railroad, but it's meant to go to Malaba or Kisumu or something like that. Anyways, there's a, there was an old colonial railroad and it was super colonial because it was literally what created the colony of Kenya. And now Kenya is, uh, sort of, um, out with the old and in with the new, its own railway, except it is, uh, funded almost completely by loans from China, um, built by Chinese corporations, um, and is at least for, 
is operated by Chinese companies and um, has just sort of this has become like a looming specter in political discourse in Kenya. It's just like we are in debt, you know, um, and I think that performs a at least uh, it, it's important discursively is that Kenyans see themselves under this uh, cloud of um, of owing of of debt to to a country that can do whatever it wants because that's where you know the the economic power lies um and so everything i think once you've set up that looming specter which is that we are in debt to china like they own us um which is not to say that that is the case but that is what that is certainly a um an important part of the discourse then everything under that sort of falls into place then for example anytime there is um an act of impunity um by a Chinese company, um, for example, in terms of environmental regulations or flouting them, or in terms of immigration, that you just have tons of, um, of, of Chinese nationals in a pretty visually striking way, at least in Nairobi, just coming in, you know, certain, just ch like Chinatowns popping up here and there, um, yeah, yeah, center, certain neighborhoods, these malls are just filled with Chinese people in a very, like, um, demographic anxiety inducing way just seeing this influx of people all of these things sort of settle in within the framework of um of political ownership of the country um and so i think that is that's sort of the the way in which i would paint the picture of chinese neocoloniality in kenya within africa or within kenya i should say to center this are these spaces liminal? It's very hard to tell from reporting because it, 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 while there may be a demand, it's not refined at all. You have a lot of people, it seems like, jumping in to cover this, this beat. And so the quality of the journalism is all over the place. Um, and I, I, for the life of me, I cannot tell the sort of feeling of if a Kenyan walked into a Chinese restaurant or a Kenyan citizen, because it is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society, walked into a newly founded Chinese business. So let's just say a, a beef noodle shop. Would they feel that that space was Kenyan? Would they feel that that space was other? How has Kenya, in terms of maybe its, its civil society, its cultural dialogue, its writers, uh, its the memes we might see on Kenyan internet. How, how do people react to, do people just casually say now, yeah, let's go get a, you know, a bowl of beef noodles. Is this, or are these spaces still considered other different? Oh, those are the Chinese. They're here, you know, for purposes that don't include us. I think it is the latter. And I would like to, push all of us to expand our imaginations to encompass the former. So what I mean by that is it's still, it, it's still very much other. Like I, and, and I think this has to do with also the like racial history and politics of, of Kenya who counts as Kenyan and who can be Kenyan, I think is, is something that like I would, I wouldn't, for example, uh, advocate for, um, Chinese migrants or immigrants to Kenya to be, to count as 
Kenyan, or I would feel uncomfortable making that claim, knowing how difficult it is for so many um, Kenyans, legitimately Kenyans, who are ethnically Somali or uh, are among many ethnic minorities who have who like who already day to day struggle to consider themselves Kenyan. It's like it's a the the politics of that are already quite complicated, and so I'm quite content for um, to to advocate just for a more uh, yeah for I guess more open imaginations and liminal spaces and not fully like you know kenyanness i think that's still quite contested but having said that i think that what well maybe i won't speak to other reporting but what i chase and what i look for are exactly those liminal spaces that you talk about and i think they're very um that they sort of uh evaporate very quickly right as soon as the as soon as a certain gaze lands upon them or a certain, as soon as there's a, you know, as soon as, I don't know, or it gets formalized or politicized or something. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the story of the Chinese restaurant that is racist or doesn't let black Kenyans in like that is a story that we've heard before. And is, I would say now, like, I think within the, the, the dominant narrative within the imaginations of most people when it comes to how uh, Kenyans and Chinese people interact on a day-to-day basis. But the liminal space that I um, look for and that I try to to highlight in, in an effort to expand people's imaginations is, for example, this tiny... Um, what is it? What do you even call it in English? Like a hoofen. There is it's like a, a rice noodle making place <laughs> that was in one of the Chinatowns that as soon as it um as soon as it opened, like there were maybe only four or five restaurants and it looked kind of like a like a garage and you would just have like it was it was just really spare, but there were a couple like first it was like, you know, primary stage, like first stage restaurants and this one hoof in place like basically it was just starting up and so they had they hired this like 19 year old kid from um i forget which region but he had just finished high school and was like whisked away to nairobi on a um non-working visa like he he even he even thought he had a fake visa. I was like, no, like it's it's fine. You're not illegal. He he was just brought over to work at this Hofen store with three Kenyan women, and so it's just the four of them all the time. You know, plastic stool type restaurant, one room, kitchen in the back with an open burner, and he didn't know any English. And the four of them, like watching them interact and. Uh, joke with one another and like run a restaurant and, and and talk and learn from one another without a single shared language like that is the liminal space that and of course like within a couple of weeks like once the boss came in and everything became a bit more formal like that evaporated and it became you know the the power relations were then um ossified and it became then the story that we now recognize which is like you know the Chinese boss doesn't talk to the staff or whatever. But like before that, if you're able to catch those liminal spaces where, um, where things are happening, and I think this happens within relationships as well, um, within, um, 
Those, yeah, or like, a, and I don't, this is a bit of a long story, but to like, for example, one of the first stories I wrote on China and Kenya was about Jehovah's Witnesses in Kenya um, who were learning Mandarin in order to preach to um, Chinese nationals who were coming into Kenya, um, because obviously the religious freedoms are greater in Kenya than they are in China. And for me, that is also a form of liminal space, which is that I think people so often imagine um, Putonghua, like standardized Mandarin, as a language that is learned for business, right, for practical purposes, so that you can make money or so that you can get political power, you know. But the point of looking at that liminal space, and for me, the question that I wanted to raise in expanding people's imaginations is, um, can we imagine um, Mandarin to be a language that exists and is used outside of market forces in this case to save souls to literally um get people um eternal life those uh, those are the i think it's with looking at liminal spaces that we're able to expand our imaginations on what china kenya whatever that's supposed to mean and what that could look like and why it's so important that we continue to why reporters and journalists and artists and writers and thinkers look for and look at these spaces um, for hints of what an alternate future could be like. So in that answer, you know, being the good anarchist that I am, when I was listening to that, you know, one thing stuck out is you said, well, the boss came back. And uh, in when we look at your New York Review of Books piece, which again, you can talk with as much breath and color as you'd like. You know, one of the 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 lurking sort of villain off stage or the lurking sort of violence off stage is that of the state, where this was an area in Guangzhou, known as Little Africa, long fascinated people who it was this strange, ungovernable in a lot of ways space where you would have all these traders coming from Africa, people coming to China to buy supplies, people setting up little restaurants for the niche community, people setting up sort of little religious spaces uh, for various uh, religious services that they wanted to offer local to their context, dozens of languages being spoken at the same time, strange patois of Putonghua and maybe local African dialects mixing. And the state at a certain point said, I think like, like a James Scott would say in, in his work, Seen Like a State, there's too much going on here. We need to um, sort of filter this in a way where we can see everything, manage everything, and control it. Um, and it, it's reminded me of that story uh, of the restaurant you just told me, where the th what's the one common denominator in both these comparisons is it's the boss. Uh, in one sense, in a business, that restaurant could have run itself just fine. Um, and in, in, for Little Africa, it could have just kept developing in its own strange little way. With, with it, but the state, uh, the boss, came in and said, no, 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 no. It needs to happen this way. And now that space, um, could, you, could you sort of walk us through a little bit of what Little Africa was and unfortunately the, the, the sad reality of today? Yeah, so this begins with my decision about whether or not to even write anything about Guangzhou, because as I wrote in the essay, I've only been there once for a few days. It's not a place that I've ever, I've never reported in China. I don't know anyone in Guangzhou. And so when all of this happened, this being 
um, a whole uh, string of events that led to the uh, eviction of Black Africans from their homes or them being subjected unfairly or at different standards. Yeah, varying standards to testing and quarantine and um, and just this these like this reel of videos and photos on social media of um, restaurant owners denying entry to Black Africans or Black Africans not being allowed to or I guess Black people in general didn't really matter to to people there um, Black people not being allowed to enter certain sections of sidewalk or go into malls or you know things like that just a a montage of discrimination. When I saw that happening, I didn't know if I had anything useful to say as someone in Nairobi who, um, yeah, who had never been there and didn't know anyone who had, um, who was there. What changed for me was when I decided that when I was figuring out what I would have to say, um, I first needed to begin by finding out what was Little Africa, as you said. And Little Africa meaning not just Guangzhou, but like the specific parts where a lot of African migrants were. And I guess broadly, the relationship of the city of Guangzhou with its African population. Um, what was Little Africa? And so I went into um, into the archives and, and down an internet rabbit hole, um, read articles, watched documentaries, looked at videos. And um, one of the videos which I sort of describe in the essay was uh, posted by um, Roberto Castillo, who is a professor of cultural studies at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. He studies race and China-Africa relations. And the seven-minute video is just this uncut intro to a documentary that shows him, um, Castillo, He's just walking through Dongfeng, this uh, open-air market at night um, in Dongfeng, and so you're just—he's just walking there, like the camera, the filmmaker, us, we're behind him, and then from from in front of him and to the sides, you just see this. Uh, the words I use in the piece is a a stunning carousel of humanity. You see this. Uh, Muslim Chinese woman who's wearing this pink sequin hijab, uh, then this African man in a kaftan, some young black men who are wearing like a glitzy cap and some backpacks, and then uh, this Uyghur man who's uh, grilling fish Africa style, this tilapia hole for an African man. Like you just see this, uh, and then you hear also, like you said, this um, just uh, a, a like a woven soundtrack of there's like Putonghua with a Guangdong accent. Some people are just speaking Cantonese. Um, so many African languages that I don't understand. You hear salam alaikum. You hear just like there's so much happening. And um, Castillo in his, there's a 2014 paper he wrote called um, Feeling at Home in the chocolate city that describes this sort of thing that he's walking through in this video. And as I was reading that academic article, I started crying. 
I even told him this. I was like, I don't know why. This is the first time I've ever cried reading a peer-reviewed academic article. And the reason is, I think, as I was reading it, I thought to myself, I want to go to this place. This has all the liminality that I'm after. And then realizing, of course, that like, especially given the recent events, that place is long gone. Like that place doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I think what's even worse is like places like that will, in the light of pandemic and biosurveillance and the sort of tightening of, of measures on movement and migration, those places are less likely than ever to exist, at least in China, for a long time. Um, and so in the process of researching for this piece, um, I realized it felt like a, a process of mourning in a certain way that these, um, that in, in, intricate ecosystem of the margins like Dongfeng one that was so that was completely indifferent to its own diversity was disappearing I think that's the key is indifferent to its own diversity right like it's it, it wasn't orchestrated by the state it wasn't orchestrated by any good intentions to you know foster china african relations in all caps or something like that it was just it was powered by the individual atomic uh or i guess like almost molecular forces of i don't know of human of human living um you know the desire to uh for profit the or love curiosity or boredom going to the big city, um, not just for Africans, but for Chinese people from other parts of the country who go to Guangzhou. Um, and in the piece, I talk a bit more about the um, ethnic minorities who have, who sort of have, who had set up shop in some of the same places and moved alongside and um, interacted with these African migrants. And so in that way, Guangzhou was in the words of Castillo, he calls it a translocality. It's unique. It wasn't just like a place where there were a lot of people from different countries and a lot of Africans. It was it, because of the circumstances of that time, a unique place. And now it's gone. So to return to Kenya and the uh, Chinese migrants who come there or the Chinese capital that comes there, um, there's a long history of tension within Asia um, Malaysia and Indonesia come to mind of Chinese immigrants coming, developing capital, gaining wealth, and then being sort of a foil of racists or nationalists uh, when they are trying to foment dissent, find an other as an excuse uh, to use violence, uh, either political violence or actual violence, uh, to gain power. Um, at the same time, um, for uh, uh, all these situations, it is people coming with the intention to build something that is theirs, that is private, that is not uh, part of the community because under capitalism, there is no community. There are no commons. Everything that can be privatized except for the air, and maybe we'll figure it, during the worst of Beijing air pollution, as you know, they did figure out a way to do that by selling canned air. Um, it, it can't be shared. Uh, could you talk a little bit about just, it's very easy for leftists to talk about capital this and capital that, but I know that for a lot of these people who are coming, 
at the level of maybe someone who saved up $5,000, $10,000. They don't see themselves as part of these larger thematic ideas. Could you talk a little bit about for the capitalists who, who come to China, what is it, or from China to Kenya, what does it look on maybe a micro scale? Who are the actual major players? So not the noodle shop who might be, uh, who, who might open up, but people who are spending billions. What are the differences of these kinds of capitalism? And for you, do you see sort of gradations in how threatening they are or how much they integrate into the community versus privatize based on the amount of wealth that they bring? That's such a such a good question, such a good perspective that I hadn't ever thought about. But now that I think about it, well, here are my thoughts on the on the Chinese side. I don't know that I can speak so much of it because I'm not very clear on the relationship between how uh, between profit and uh, private companies and so-called private companies and how that is sort of reintegrated, I guess, in the case of China, more forcibly into public services. But certainly in Kenya, I think what could be um, what could be dangerous about this um, is the is the too sm- what was it? not lack of imagination, but um, an imagination about um, the government's public responsibility that is too small. And what I mean by that is that Kenya is incredibly. Um, I mean, again, to to sort of take it to Nairobi because I think you s- can understand this in a more visual way. Um, Nairobi is an incredibly privatized city. Um, there's no, there are very few, um, public spaces. And I think this has become clear with COVID is like, it's just sort of highlighted all the ways in which the inequalities have, are, are sort of, yeah, everything is heightened, but you know, you go, you go to a place, you take up, uh, you, you take up space at a store and like, you can't, you go to a mall and you can't sit down outside, but so the guard will be like, sorry, you can't, you can't sit here. You need to go into a store and then like buy something and sit down. This is something that like in conversations that I have with, um, with Kenyans and Chinese people, the one thing that like stands out, I think for a lot of Kenyans who travel to other places is, is public space. It's just the right to, right to be. Um, and I think, so that's like, on a sort of physical level, but when you look at, for example, public libraries, of which there are very few, and the ones that exist are very um, under-resourced, um, museums, things like that, these sorts of public goods that you would come to expect are, I, I think the the more insidious thing is that um, people that becomes normal in a way like people don't become don't come to expect that the government provides them services um and the way in which that void is filled what should be what ought to be the responsibility of the government um to provide whether that be um, utilities or education or you know education also is um there's no free k-12 um 
there's only free primary school, stuff like that, that you just, you become used to this idea that you pay your way through your life. Um, and that things that ought to be, that would be provided publicly by taxpayer money and ought to be provided here by taxpayer money. Just, you know, that's not a given. Um, and I think the most, uh, evil ways in which that plays out is when you go to informal settlements, um, in Nairobi and you see that everything is, everything is, um, what's the right word? Um, commodified, but you pay for everything. You pay for a high rent um, for, you know, a, a tiny shack. You pay a premium for water because it's controlled by cartels. You pay a premium for electricity because it's controlled by cartels, not by the government. Um, you pay every time you walk into a public toilet or a one of these, you know, um, uh, startup, uh, built toilets. You pay for, you know, every individual, uh, you know, uh, diaper or, uh, a packet of, like, you know, everything in your life is measured out in, in, in money and often at a premium. And so going, looping back to, <laughs> to your original question is that if the, um, if citizens, if Kenyan citizens, um, do not, well, and I don't want to put it on Kenyan citizens. For example, the Kenyan state is used to an environment in which they are not beholden to, um, invest in, in the commons, invest in, in public services and public goods as they probably, as they ought to. Then, the void that that creates is one for not only Chinese uh, investment to come in and just yeah create into uh, um, to profit and to create you know capital and power for themselves and in line with the political elite in Kenya, but also for um, for uh, so-called innovators or people working in the private sector. Um, social entrepreneurs, etc., to sort of come in. And th this is not to say that all of this is evil, but to, to come into this, um, this void to perform and to offer the services, um, to that basically the state has failed to provide. Um, I think, yeah, hopefully that makes sense. I don't know if that answers your, your question. What came to mind, actually, is Trump. Trump is a really interesting figure when you start jumping around the world, uh, not in terms of his ideology. He's a racist and, a, 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 you know, a vicious capitalist. But the reaction that this inspires in capitalists globally, he's got a huge following in India, has a huge following in Brazil. In China, actually, there was a very loud uh, contingent of people, and, and I talked about this with Kuchang Fang, who, along with Tony Lin, very savvy reporters on like the right wing in China, like people who want even more like very authoritarian capitalism. They look to a figure like Trump sort of as this as a way to reassert their own supremacy within societies when they feel they're not getting enough. Uh, they're not able to privatize enough of the resources on their own. And it's, it's in the U.S. right now, you're seeing all this really interesting long dormant dialogue because the Bernie Sanders sort of wing of our left, in my opinion, didn't do a good job building intersectionality. They did a very good job talking about 
the economics of racism, but a very bad job talking about the lived experience of what racism is. And you have to do both. You sort of have to kill racism and capitalism at the same time, or one will pop up while you're chopping away at the other. And I'm, I'm wondering for Kenya's capitalists, who maybe are, are getting nervous going, well, wait a minute, you know, we could have privatized that port, or we could have mined um, those resources, but it's, it's going to a Chinese firm where I don't have access. Are we starting to see some of this more nationalist Trumpian rhetoric of blame the Chinese as opposed to saying, no, the, the problem is capitalism. The problem is that either party can privatize. Um, do you, is any of that Trumpianism being used as a way to scapegoat Chinese capitalists who are just coming in trying to make money in, in the only system we have right now currently? My intuitive response to this is no. And I think that has to do with the ways in which the largest, um, the largest companies, the largest, um, monopolies or industry, um, players are quite aligned with the Kenyan state. Um, and I'm speaking slowly because this is not something I've looked at closely. Um, but well, I think one, a, a better way to maybe talk about this is, um, Nanjala Nyabola, who's a political analyst uh, based here in Nairobi, she sort of illustrates this as, you know, you have the, the private sector, um, large companies, almost including some parastatal companies like um, Safaricom, et cetera, et cetera. You have the public sector, the state, um, and then you have citizens. And the situations, the conditions in Kenya right now are such that the private sector um has such, in, in her words, a tremendous amount of power in the legislative space, um, in the participation space, in the representation space, um, that basically the citizens have been cut out of that. Um, there is, and so political decisions, um, decisions, whether that be about, um, you know, at the policy level or about whether or not this mega infrastructure project, this infrastructure mega project is accepted and whether or not, like, a whole ass railway is built. <laughs> like citizens don't have any say in that because they're not stakeholders in that corporation and the corporations involved. Um, and those corporations have links to, uh, within and, and to the state. And so I think that it, it, I think maybe what I'm getting at is the rift, uh, the sort of, um, the distance that might cause anxiety about you know, whether or not the other, you know, there's something bad happening that exists more between citizens and uh, corporations in the state rather than certain corporations and, you know, within Kenya and uh, Chinese corporations. So for COVID, I guess, you know, my, uh, you, you had a really interesting line and other people have talked about this where specifically, and again, this is where I get very mad at the U.S. left, where um, not reporting something rigorously to me is some, is Orientalism. And a lot of what the U.S. left does because they want this to be 68 and that we're constantly on the precipice of a Marxist revolution is they'll see the 
the, the, the communist part of the CCP and go, oh, it's communist. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. And as, as you know, because you are a rigorous reporter and you're not someone who, just because someone tells you one thing, I'm against China. Well, okay, but President Trump, you're making billions of dollars off of it. Just because someone tells you something doesn't mean it's true. And for reporting on Xinjiang, for example, racism has been extremely useful to for the party's campaign of of destroying this region of of or of putting people into these camps and uh, a big part of this campaign was sort of a, a war on terror rhetoric that is very familiar maybe in many ways directly copied from the US script of how they built up racism uh, within citizens fear uh, of Muslims, of Arab Americans, in order to implement these very draconian, very brutal uh, systems in America. And um, with COVID for, for Guangzhou, there was this huge event where it, I, I think it's Tony Lin. Uh, when uh, he's a rare moment in China when nationalism lost to racism. So could you just recount for us what this event was, this, this sort of series of events, how COVID came into play and what you make of that, what to me, you know, you could just, that is the article in a quote. Um, this was racism beating nationalism. Can you talk about some of those themes in terms of this huge domestic uh, issue for all of Africa now in terms of how people are very angry at how Africans were treated uh, in China in during COVID-19. So the way in which this played out, I think, was very different at a um, at the sort of diplomatic and political level, where I think things were more or less resolved. Um, I, and what I focused on in my piece um, was sort of the groundswell of. Um, I think the way in which this event was reported, um, to a certain extent, focused on the the top layer. And what I wanted to take a closer look at was like the huge groundswell of um, support for these for the racist policies, or sort of yeah, from the Chinese side. Maybe not support for the policies, but just racist rhetoric that came out of Weibo and other places on the Chinese internet. And then on the other hand, this huge um, outcry from uh, pe people on the internet in Africa and in the uh, Black diaspora decrying all of this. Um, and what, yeah, just sort of figuring out what happened. And so the thing that, the sort of um, conclusion that I reached was that the way that I sort of visualized this was um, for a censorship regime like China, what you they understand the physics of discourse. Um, and what I mean by that and what, what you get to when you talk about the Uyghurs is that what you have when you censor information um, is a incredibly distorted ecosystem so you because you've taken out a, so much of this what ends up uh being left 
um, is a weird combination of things that are completely anodyne, you know, just meaningless and apolitical, um, but also things that are political but are supportive, right? So you just have an imbalanced system in a way, an imbalanced body. Um, and so what the Chinese authorities, what the censorship regime has understood and understands well is that if you allow just basically through omission of censorship, if you just allow certain things to um, run their course, then that will help you. And so in the case of the um, campaign against Uyghurs, which um, includes concentration camps um, in, in Xinjiang province, is that there has been a pattern of Chinese authorities um, giving permission to uh, for uh, Islamophobic uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric to sort of foment. Um, and the example I used in the piece was that of um, of uh, Hefei. There was a um, uh, plans to reconstruct a uh, what was it called uh, Nangang Mosque which was a centerpiece of Hui culture Hui is another Muslim dominant um, Chinese ethnic minority um, they wanted to build this mosque that was originally established in the 1780s in this plot of land in Hefei which is the, which was near a you know a new flashy condo development um, and so the majority Han people around that, were opposed to the building of this mosque and things got uh, sort of, uh, yeah, things got heated and culminated in just uh, this really disgusting and uh, even at times graphic uh, anti-Muslim hate speech online around this um, where people were threatening, including some, um, you know, prominent uh, members of the, uh, of the government of CCP um, saying that they would, or repeating threats by people that they would put a pig's head or pig's blood on the plot if they went forward with it. Um, and so this was an example I point out of like the government <laughs> like sort of setting something in motion, right? Back to the physics of discourse. You allow, by allowing certain things to keep moving, you set this like flywheel into motion faster and faster and faster and faster. It has so much inertia that when something like this happens, the Nangang Mox, which is like, you know, fine. It was, it doesn't hurt anyone for it to be built there. It's not against the party's interest for this moss to be built there. But this flywheel is already moving so fast. It's so powerful that um, it just keeps going by itself and it goes, it's just so extreme and you can't stop it. And that you that like an inability to stop it is what I saw when it came to the Guangzhou events because what you had was um, and I cite the work of um, Chen Chen Zhang who is a scholar on, on race and um, race in China and sort of anti-blackness. And her work really just shows that like in, in a similar way as to the, this anti-Muslim dynamics in, in Nangang and Hefei, what happens is that when the censorship regime allows for anti-Western um, pro CCP uh, hyper-nationalist rhetoric to grow, what happens is you get this very extreme form of 
um, digital nationalism, especially in, is, it expresses in specific ways online. Um, this very hyper nationalist digital nationalism that actually, um, ends up borrowing a lot of elements from the, from Western right wing populist movements like, uh, misogyny, like, um, Islamophobia, like, uh, the sort of like the hate speech patterns of, of all of the, and anti-blackness as well. Um, but they are permitted because they are anti-Western, because they serve the, the function of, you know, of, um, of the party's interests, they are by omission allowed to exist in this, you know, distorted censorship <laughs> ecosystem. And then, so this anti, this, you know, uh, xenophobia, this anti-blackness, um, that flywheel has been in motion for so long because it's been allowed, because for the longest time it was anti-Western, right? It was useful to the government. So it's been allowed to spin faster and faster and faster. So you get to a point like Wanzhou where suddenly it's not within the party's interest for people to be acting in a racist way against black people. Um, and this is what Tony Lin gets to is his tweet was about this video on, uh, that showed uh, Zhao Lijian, who was the foreign ministry head, giving a speech, basically saying conciliatory things like, you know, Africans are our brothers, you know, we're together, we're not racist, blah, blah, blah. But all of the comments underneath, the most upvoted comments were very much xenophobic, were very much racist comments. Um, they were, you know, criticizing uh, him, criticizing the government for once, for, you know, putting foreigners above the uh, above Chinese citizens. And so that's why Tony Lin um, sort of commented, yeah, like in this case, nationalism loses, which is very rare. Nationalism loses in this case to racism. And that was just an image of how once, um, once the government had set this flywheel, this discourse flywheel into motion, they were unable to, to mediate it, unable to stop it. It was or this anti-blackness had already been put into motion. And of course, like I need to say that China has a, its own complicated and specific history with uh, with race and racism um, dating back, you know, hundreds of years that there's also that plays a role. But in terms of this, the digital manifestation, this like Weibo manifestation of of nationalism as it relates to um, to African migrants in you know, within the past couple of, or past couple of decades, I think this is the, I think that image of, of a flywheel is something that is useful for helping to understand when public discourse, when public opinion, um, matches and when it doesn't match with the intentions of the party, the party state. What is your sense of the solidarities that either the party or Kenyans Kenya's ruling class are afraid of. So one that would immediately jump out to me would be uh, Islam, where the party uh, has been very um, nervous about um, Muslim-majority countries speaking out uh, or, or countries where there are many uh, people of the Islamic faith speaking out about Xinjiang. So they've done huge pools of lobbying, bringing Instagram celebrities over from places like uh, Indonesia, huge amounts of money and goodwill um, 
to try to blunt uh, any of these solidarities from forming. Likewise, for labor, you know, there's probably a lot of complaints where if, if I was at a bar and we could get a translator between a Chinese laborer and a Kenyan laborer, probably both would be pretty pissed off at their boss uh, for, from time to time, at least. And I, I'm wondering for, for either where it's obvious, and, and, and again, if it's not something that comes to mind clearly, no worries. I'm just curious about this. Do we see any solidarities that uh, either of these uh, regions, uh, Kenya or China, either of these countries are very nervous about and have been very explicit of sort of about saying, no, this is how you're supposed to feel, or this is, this is okay, this solidarity is okay, but this solidarity isn't okay. Yeah, this is an area where I think I am I am more pessimistic. Um, with the Uyghurs, for example, I think at least at the at the political level, at, at the level of leadership, um, there were this was uh, last year, I believe, um, several African states, um, including ones that are uh, of uh, majority. Muslim countries praised China's actions in Xinjiang. This included uh, Somalia, Egypt, um, Nigeria, Algeria, and then I think both Sudan and South Sudan. Um, of course, it doesn't reflect what the majority of their populations feel about that. Um, and on that front, I don't know of, and certainly not in Kenya, um, I don't know of really any organized movements of solidarity among um, Muslim Africans. I think, I think there has been some on an individual level, but like not at a, at least not, I can't say I know of any movements that have shown support for, um, for Uyghurs. Um, I, and certainly in Kenya, if any organized group were to uh, demand accountability or to, you know, uh, or to, act in any way in support of Uyghurs, they would run into, I think, first, before any blowback from the Chinese state, they would um, run into incredible blowback from the Kenyan state in terms of the, um, yeah, for that. Um, so I, and then and the labor issue is also such an interesting it's an interesting place to think because my intuition right now would be that when it comes to laborer to laborer, um, and honestly, in most cases, exploited laborer to exploited laborer interactions between Chinese people and Kenyans, um, I think the issue of race takes primacy. Um, I get to this in, in, the in the uh, New York Review Books essay, which is that in Amartya Sen's book um, Identity and Violence, his main argument is that um, the antidote to identity-based conflict is not we are all the same, like we're all human, we all bleed red, but rather that we are diversely different, that each individual has a plurality of identities. So for example, um, worker or Kikuyu or Kenyan national or father or Christian. And there are, and you know, same for a Chinese worker and, and 
in order to, I think one of the necessary preconditions for, um, for, for real potential in solidarities is a recognition of those other shared identities. For example, worker, <laughs> exploited worker to exploited worker, um, across nationalities. But the problem is that, and the danger of the single identity, as, as Sen says, is that, um, that single identity is that it makes everything more volatile and there is politics behind who gets to choose which identity is most important um the fact that um someone's identity as chinese is is always going to take primacy um or their identity as african is always going to take primacy whether we're talking about in kenya or in guangzhou in both of these different contexts the fact that like only one identity matters is what makes things unstable or what um what prevents us from seeing potential in solidarity um so i if anything what little africa represented before was was yeah a place where all of those pluralities of identities could uh could manifest could interact in in many different ways your identity as um, as a Muslim or as a Yoruba or as an entrepreneur, as a student, as a mother, as, um, you know, as lonely, like all of those identities could uh, had space to just sort of interact in a way that wasn't defined by a state or wasn't defined by capital. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, I, this is a place where I want to see our imaginations expand, um, where we don't just take for granted that a single identity as Chinese or African is, is primary, where we see beyond that and, um, and allow ourselves to imagine images, situations where, um, where different identities interact in again and, and perhaps what, what end up being very liminal spaces that I feel like is, is so important. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering for you as someone who I think is openly feminist and has probably had to navigate multiple feminisms, do you have any insight into this? Because China had a really like crazy rip-roaring uh, feminist period of activism um, that the party was like so scared of that they, they shut down, like in very harsh ways with arrests, with censorship, freaking, threatening people's families. Um, they were really scared by the feminism uh, of that uh, of, of that recent history. I'm imagining for Kenya, it has a very probably uh, interesting and diverse and figuring it out form of feminism in terms of how that is evolving. And you're also, as you said, you're an Asian American. And I'm wondering in all these spaces where you, you probably come into feminisms that are more angry about capitalism, feminisms that are more angry about racism, feminisms that are more angry about a lack of queer uh, representation or would fit more within the, the spirit of the Stonewall riots. Do you have a sense from your own experiences as really like this very interesting dynamic person who's doing all this interesting reporting in multiple languages and going around the world do you have a sense of, of that question, at least when it comes to your own lived experience? Hmm. 
Well, first off, I think for anyone who's interested in learning more about the about the feminist movements and the crackdowns on them in China, I'd refer them to the work of Lita Hong Fincher. Um, she's definitely the yeah the <laughs> leading voice on on these issues and has done amazing reporting and writing scholarly work on uh, on on the feminist vibe. And I think you talked about this in a previous podcast episode as well with, um, with healing new. So that's not something that I know very much about. Um, and I would refer listeners to, um, to Hong Fincher's work in terms of, and I, I, in terms of talking about my thinking and, uh, and who I am and where I am and, and what I do, I think it is undoubtedly, <laughs> certainly without a doubt, my thinking, my feminism has been shaped so much by um, by Kenyan feminists, by Kenyan thinkers, um, writers, philosophers, poets, artists, and, it, and being in Kenya, being outside of the U.S. for the last five years um, has definitely uh, changed my, uh, yeah, has, has shifted, has changed, has shaped my worldview. Um, and of course also having like my short time, brief time living in China last year has also, um, sort of hemmed in and shaped my identities and <laughs> thinking in that way as well. And I think that with, in terms of, um, potentials for, uh, for, for, mutual learning, I guess, and of, of sharing, especially in times like this, like I mentioned earlier, when, when so many of us are open to that, I feel that it is more important than ever to look across space and across time to learn from, from other people. Um, and I think one of the pitfalls of a lot of, um, Maybe not just reporting, but people who, who look at, who gaze at, um, in China and Kenya, or maybe China and Africa in general is this assumption or is assumption that Chinese people coming into Africa, that it's, there's no way that Chinese people could possibly be shaped by or that their worldviews could be changed radically by, um, by Africans, right? Like there, it's almost this assumption that there's like nothing here. <laughs> and so I, I get to this a little bit in the, in my piece, uh, on Jehovah's Witnesses, which by the way was for this, uh, China Morning Post magazine, um, which is that people seem to, don't seem to realize that it's so possible for a Chinese migrant who grows up in an, uh, a religious environment to come to a country like Kenya, which is so, um, radically tolerant in terms of religion, um, compared to, uh, I mean, in the world, like, and compared certainly to other countries in, in Africa, it's just so, uh, the, the sort of effortlessness with the way in which different religions, uh, slide across one another. And it's just, yeah, Kenya is a Chinese example of that. The fact that a Chinese person, um, could come to Kenya and and be, you know, altered in a way, whether that's receiving Christ, um, or, or just being exposed to a very openly religious and also religiously open country. 
it doesn't even occur to people as a possibility that like you know Africans have anything to teach um, to people coming in um, and I think my my experience has just shown me that like so much of what I have understood and learned about my own identity as a as an Asian American, as a Chinese American, I have drawn from the thinking of a lot of, um, of, of Kenyans as they also sort of dig into their, their histories. They're like one generation back, two generation back. What was lost? Um, what needs to be reclaimed? What needs to be reworked? Those conversations, those, uh, that thinking, that theory, that imagination has been essential in my own development. Um, and so what I hope for, and you know, there's a lot of space and work that needs to be done in this space, maybe translation being a major one. I would love to see more um, sharing of, of, of work, sharing of, of learnings and of these sorts of conversations between um, organizers, activists in China um, and those in, in, um, in, in Kenya and other African countries and other countries around the world. I understand there are obviously huge <laughs> obstacles to that, and um, Eiling talked about that in, in her podcast with you, what kinds of organizings are, are possible, but even organizing within China is just, as she was talking about, a, just a huge challenge. But um, I think that that would be, in my mind, uh, such an, uh, a promising in, in uh just like a wonderful outcome of of the diasporic spaces that are created by this um quote-unquote china in africa is the possibility for chinese people to come into contact with um with african thinkers and activists and organizers and um the sort of unintended uh, un unintended from the perspective of the state but unintended cross-pollination of ideas um whether through just working alongside physically and then later on through through the internet but i would love to see i would love to see more of that and i would love to yeah i think that's something we should keep an eye out on <laughs> <laughs>